Hello, this is Jimmy LaSalle, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Today, we are going to tackle a controversial topic in current events. Should statues and military installations named after historical figures with ties to slavery be removed or renamed? We are going to provide the facts and consider both sides of the argument, and hopefully at the end you can make your own decision. With me, as always, is our resident history buff, Gene Anzanakis. Let's have at it. So in recent years, and even going back decades in some instances, there has been a call to remove statues and to rename military bases that depict the likeness or the name of historical figures with ties to either slavery or the Confederacy. The fierce debate on this has become heightened in recent months. The American public has been divided over this. This is in no way a one discussion topic that is easily settled. What the hope is for this particular discussion is to shed light on the story of these historical figures and what these individuals did during their lifetime. I have to admit, when it came to the names of military installations throughout the United States, my knowledge base was pretty limited. Like most people, you hear the names of bases thrown around in the news. Aside from Robert E. Lee, I could not have had a discussion on any of these individuals prior to my research, and I was pretty surprised by what I found. The United States Army has 10 installations named after Confederate military commanders. There are also some Navy ships named after Confederate officers or, or battles. The naming, now this is a direct quote, the naming was done in the spirit of reconciliation, not to demonstrate support for any particular cause or ideology. Now this is the typical government response when people are asked, why are these installations named after these individuals? So you have to consider timing. Timing matters. For example, West Point named Barracks after General Robert E. Lee, an 1829 graduate of the school in the early 1960s. There are also barracks named after Benjamin O. Davis Jr., a 1936 graduate who was a Tuskegee Airman and the first African-American general officer in the Air Force. So these military installations are located in various states in the South, some of them located in what was considered the Deep South. The first installation, Fort A.P. Hill, is located in Virginia. It began as a World War II training ground. Ambrose Powell Hill Jr. was a Confederate general who died in battle one week before the South surrendered. Camp Beauregard is in Louisiana, began as a training space during World War II. He was a Confederate general who served in the Army during the Mexican-American War. Then we have Fort Benning in Georgia, began as basic training campgrounds during World War I. Benning was a Confederate general and fought in the battles of Antietam and Gettysburg. We have Fort Bragg. That might sound a little bit more familiar to you all. Fort Bragg is located in North Carolina. It's the largest military installation in the world. It began as an artillery training ground during World War I. Braxton Bragg was a Confederate general, an Army officer who served in the Second Seminole War and the Mexican-American War. Fort Gordon is named after John Brown Gordon. It's located in Georgia. It was a training site for World War I. 
He was one of Robert E. Lee's most trusted generals. Fort Hood, another famous uh, military installation, it's located in Texas. It was a tank testing ground during World War II, or began as that during World War II. John Bell Hood was a Confederate military officer. Fort Polk, it's located in Louisiana, was established again during World War II. He was an Episcopal bishop in Louisiana and became a Confederate general. He was actually killed in action uh, in 1864. A little interesting fact, he was a second cousin of James K. Polk. Uh, and he gave up his religious post in order to be a major general in the Confederate Army. Fort Rucker is located in Alabama, again established during World War II. Edmund Rucker was given the honorary title of general. Uh, he was captured in 1864, and General Nathan Bedford Forrest, whose name should also sound familiar, he was uh, the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. He organized his release. Uh, Edmund Rucker was the grandson of General Winchester, a veteran of the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. When the Civil War ended and he returned to his home state of Tennessee, he continued to work in the railroad industry along with Nathan Bedford Forrest. He eventually moved to Alabama, became what we would refer to today as an industrial tycoon. He dealt with things like coal and steel, land, even the banking business. Fort Lee is in Virginia. Uh, it was established during the Civil War, named after Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee, of course, has the reputation as one of the greatest military leaders in history. He helped to run West Point. He was an alumni. He had an, a military career. He is known for fighting in the Mexican-American War. He got John Brown to surrender in 1859 in Harper's Ferry. Uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, to General Grant. Robert E. Lee didn't support secession, but he could not turn his back on Virginia. When Virginia seceded, Robert E. Lee commanded the Confederate Army. Fort Pickett is located in Virginia. It was established during World War II. George Pickett led infantry assault against Union soldiers at Gettysburg. It resulted in significant losses and so this topic has been in the news recently. Over the summer, there was a talk about a defense bill. It's called the National Defense Authorization Act. And these types of bills are passed regularly. It's a defense spending bill. And this particular bill is allotted $740 billion. And it's going to do a multitude of things. One of the provisions in this defense bill would change the name of 10 military bases named after Confederate generals. It would also remove any Confederate likenesses and symbols from defense facilities nationwide, and this would be done within three years. That's the time frame in this original bill. It may change once it gets to committees. President Trump threatened to veto the bill if that provision is not removed. Whether or not that will happen, is yet to be seen. But a historical footnote is necessary here in order to understand the history behind this. For Southern Confederate military leaders, it's important to understand the allegiance individuals had prior to the Civil War. If you study many primary source documents, you will find the wording interesting. In many documents written prior to the Civil War, you will see the phrase, the United States are being used. 
If you look at documents written after the Civil War, you will see the United States is being used instead. One is plural, the other is singular. After the Civil War in primary source documents, that wording change from the United States are to the United States is shows the departure from thinking the United States is a loose alliance of states, but instead one united country. That change in that one word is extremely significant. Prior to the Civil War, if you asked many historical figures where they were from, they would answer, I'm from Virginia, I am from Delaware, I am from New York, I'm from Georgia. Very few, if any, would have said, I am from the United States of America. The allegiance and ties to one state was extremely important. So much so that when Abraham Lincoln asked Robert E. Lee to lead the Union Army, his response was, I cannot turn my back on Virginia. He was not such a supporter of secession, but he was a supporter of Virginia. His allegiance to his state was greater than to that of his country. When we talk about causes of the Civil War, we often talk about sectional conflicts. These sectional conflicts very easily dictated the pros and cons that each side had during the Civil War. For example, the North had more factories. They had an easier time with supplies. The North had more railroad lines. They could move their supplies easier. The South had a much stronger military tradition than the North did. And as a result, the greatest military generals at the time ended up siding with the South. When the South lost the Civil War and it came time for reconciliation, there were many debates as to how Reconstruction should go. Should Confederate leaders be punished? Should they be banned from ever holding public office again? The time frame of Reconstruction lasts from 1865, the end of the Civil War, until 1877. If you think about all that needed to be done politically, economically, socially to rebuild and reconstruct the South and really the entire country after the Civil War, 12 years isn't close to being enough. Reconstruction ends in 1877 not because they finished the work they set out to complete, but because it was politically advantageous for them to end it. The Compromise of 1877 is something most people have never heard of. It was a backroom deal established by a number of U.S. senators that ended the disputed 1876 presidential election between Samuel J. Tilden, a Democrat who actually won the popular vote, and Rutherford B. Hayes, a Republican. Neither candidate got that magic number they needed in the Electoral College. So the Constitution tells us it goes to the House of Representatives. The compromise made Rutherford B. Hayes the president as long as certain conditions were met. The removal of remaining troops in southern states, 
They had to give federal aid to the South and to approve the creation of a southern line of the Transcontinental Railroad. The removal of federal troops solidified southern democratic control over southern states. It effectively ended Reconstruction. The Democrats didn't need to have their person in the White House because the legislative branch agreed to do everything that their candidate would have done had he won that office. As a result, many new rights and freedoms of black Americans were severely limited and in most cases taken away completely. Black Americans were left to fend for themselves against state governments that wanted nothing more than to infringe upon their new rights, to make them second-class citizens in every sense possible, and then had a federal government that did very little, if anything, to stop it for decades. So we have to consider some essential dates, right? So we have 1865, the end of the Civil War. You have 1877, the end of Reconstruction. And then you have this huge gap Civil Rights Act of 1964, it outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion. It prohibited unequal voter registration, segregation in schools, workforce, public places. So you have that law, but now it has to be enforced. Now it has to be followed. Now you have to break down those barriers that existed for more than a generation. Now you have the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It ended literacy tests, poll taxes. Why has American society not been able to own up to its past? You have to kind of consider that. Why is it that when history is taught, it is taught from a Eurocentric perspective? Why are we still painting some ancient civilizations to be savages? a lesser than society. Representation matters. Being able to see a version of yourself in mass media, in children's books, in your teachers, business leaders, your elected officials, this is essential. Now, I can speak from an educator's perspective how important it is for students to learn about historical figures of all skin tones. School curriculums around the country need to do a better job of teaching Latin, African, indigenous, Asian, Middle Eastern studies with the same type of passion that European and American studies have been taught. Children of all races should see and hear about the greatness of heroes in a variety of races, in different genders. We need to have more people of color becoming educators. I, I saw either an Instagram or a Facebook post, I forget which, but the question was asked, what grade were you in when you had a teacher of a different race for the first time? For me, it wasn't until I was in college. For many of my high school students, I was the only female teacher they had that year. So for many of my female students, they would tell me, you know, at the end of the year, in the middle of the year, on a random day, how important it was for them to have a female teacher who was strong or had that I can do anything attitude. So now if you take those sentiments and we put it into the scenario 
of a child who has never had a person of color as their teacher, look at that void. If we move that scenario to our monuments, our statues, schools, universities that are named after historical figures with ties to slavery, think about that impact, both sides of the coin. Why does a society erect monuments, statues? Why do they named why do they name buildings after dead people, right? To honor them. Maybe their legacy, their accomplishments. Maybe they gave a ton of money, right? Some historical figures have had their legacy given massive amounts of plastic surgery, rewritten to serve an organization's purpose. When people speak of Christopher Columbus with such positivity, it lacks an understanding of the full picture. As an Italian-American, right, a fellow Paisan, I will be the first person to say that that historical figure is a murky one, right? Upon his return to Spain from the New World, which wasn't so new to the indigenous people that had lived here for centuries, he was jailed for how cruel he was to the natives. He and his brothers were stripped of their lands, their title, their fortune. They were eventually released and had their wealth restored by the king and queen of Spain, but he and his brothers were never allowed to be governor again. Christopher Columbus died never knowing he found a new world. Till the day he died, he thought he found a faster route to the West Indies. He was brought back into prominence by the Knights of Columbus. A lot of people don't realize that. The Knights of Columbus were looking for a patron other than a saint that would bolster pride for Catholics and immigrant groups who were largely ostracized by majority groups like white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. You know, Italian-Americans received their fair share of backlash in the United States when they first came to this country as immigrants. They were called, you know, WAPs without passports. Many Italian-Americans forced to change their names so they could be hired so they wouldn't sound so Italian. One of the concepts I always asked my students to consider was to what extent should the Spanish conquest of the Americas be considered an American Holocaust? In recent years, many cities throughout the United States are choosing to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day instead of traditional Columbus Day celebrations. Columbus Day is not celebrated in every state. Um, that's important to know. Some states are choosing to celebrate Italian Heritage Day instead, or they're celebrating Cabrini Day in honor of uh, St. Francis Cabrini. Choosing to highlight the history and traditions and contributions of the indigenous people of that area instead of Christopher Columbus. Another controversial topic that's been a hot button in the news has been the statue of President Theodore Roosevelt in front of the Museum of Natural History. This statue in New York City depicts President Teddy Roosevelt on horseback with a Native American man and an African man standing on either side of the horse. The statue has been there since the 1940s. Some people feel the statue depicts colonialism and racial hierarchy. Roosevelt, aside from being a former president, was a great conservationist. We have him to thank for our beautiful national parks. He was also a former governor of New York, and his descendants were instrumental in the creation of the museum. 
and Theodore Roosevelt IV currently sits on the museum's board of directors. The statue was created by a man by the name of James Earl Fraser. The artist at the time it was unveiled explained that the individuals represented continents, the Americas and Africa, as opposed to merely individuals. The notion that Theodore Roosevelt is a racist is just not true or a fair comment to make. President Theodore Roosevelt, there's, there's nothing really to really tie that to him. One story that I think people would find interesting is that President Theodore Roosevelt had a great relationship with Booker T. Washington. And during his presidency in 1901, Booker T. Washington was invited to eat dinner at the White House with Roosevelt and his family. It caused quite a controversy at the time. For many instances, people of color have come to the White House to have meetings, but never before did the President of the United States sit at a dinner table and have dinner with a person of color. And so this was a huge controversy at the time, but it was not controversial to Teddy Roosevelt. In 1901, a woman by the name of Minnie Cox was the first African-American female postmaster general. It's important to understand that art is often interpreted in different ways. In 1999, the first calls to remove this statue began and have continued on and off. In June of 2020, the museum announced that the statue would be removed and that the Hall of Biodiversity would be named after President Roosevelt instead. Statues of presidents, such as Washington and Thomas Jefferson, as well as other early American presidents who were also slave owners, are also seeing protests and damage being done to their statues. When it comes to U.S. presidents, we need to do a better job of talking about the whole story. Yes, these are individuals who are important to our nation's history and have done many great things. But we also need to talk about the fact that some were slave owners. I never learned growing up that George Washington owned slaves. There's some talk about Thomas Jefferson, right? But, you know, you don't hear about Madison. You don't hear about Monroe. You never heard about Washington. But the fact is that they all were. People are products of the time in which they live. If you discuss the conditions and evils of slavery, what those individuals did or didn't do to try to right those wrongs, taking down statues doesn't erase the fact that they were slave owners or that slavery existed during the time in which they lived. It simply takes down the statues. Taking down statues also doesn't remove their significance to American history. It simply removes the statue. In no time in all my years teaching, you know, when I was going to talk about George Washington, did I say, all right, guys, let's go to that statue of George Washington. Time to learn about him. You don't need a statue to, to talk about somebody, but you also can't erase history because you don't like it. You have to own up to it. You have to talk about it. You have to discuss it. You have to tell the whole story. In New York City, we have a history of getting rid of statues of historical figures. Once upon a time, like all good stories go, there was a statue of King George III. 
In July of 1776, the Declaration of Independence was read to a crowd in New York City. The crowd was so moved that a group of them went and pulled the statue of the king down. It was later melted down, and the lead was used to make bullets for the Revolutionary War. Having the backstory and an understanding of the historical and cultural significance of a country's past is essential. And we should be able to do that without having such anger and such violence. You should be able to listen to somebody else's views without it resulting in a screaming match. You know, one of my favorite quotes is by Desmond Tutu. And he said, my father always used to say, don't raise your voice, improve your argument. Good sense does not always lie with the loudest shouters, nor can we say that a large, unruly crowd is always the best arbiter of what is right. Jeanne, thank you. This was this was great. A couple of a couple of the things that I really took away from this is the the R versus is the United States R change to the United States is and the the alliance of states versus the country R versus is caused Robert E. Lee to side with Virginia as opposed to the the North when it came to the Civil War out of a sense of duty and and you can kind of understand that perspective. I also liked where you, you talked about historical figures being given massive amounts of plastic surgery to meet a particular organization's, you know, quote unquote purpose. Sure, the plastic surgery can can make you look that much better, but remember it's it's there in your DNA. I think a lot of the recent outrage is due to people jumping to conclusions and honing in on one aspect of a person's character rather than the whole body of work. I really enjoyed the piece on Teddy Roosevelt and and his background and the statues outside of the museum. I think that was very informative. And I also think we unlocked some future podcast opportunities. Certainly, we're going to get into the Civil War, but we can really do a deeper dive into the after effects, getting into the Compromise of 1877, which you mentioned today, as well as some of the more lesser-known historical figures that maybe we touched on a little bit, but we can do a deeper dive on. All right. Thanks for listening to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated. For Gene Anzanakis, this is Jimmy LaSalle. And follow us on social media. Download our podcasts so you get alerts when the next one is out. Talk to you soon.